developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. friends. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. This is Dr. Lynn, and today visiting with us is my friend and colleague, Dr. Charles Shadovsky, also known as Dr. S. Dr. S is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see his power, passion, and influencing abilities. Today, we're going to talk about something quite different called visual snow syndrome. What is it and how we can treat it? And no, this is not our big snowstorms in Colorado. You'll find out what this has to do with your brain. But here's a little bit about Dr. S's impressive and adventurous life. He was raised in Lawrence, New York, and moved to Dallas when he was in high school. He attended the University of Texas at Austin and then Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee, where he received his Doctor of Optometry degree in 1988. Dr. S is the founder and center director at the NeuroVision Associates in Texas, uh, NeuroVision Associates of North Texas. And these are uh, specialty practices focused on neurodevelopmental vision, vision rehabilitation and therapy, acquired brain injury, myopia management, sports vision, and dry eye. And we'll be talking about all of this in just a moment. Dr. S is an adjunct professor at several optometry schools. In addition, in addition, he's a residency director uh, through the Southern College of Optometry. He's on staff and consulting optometrists at several rehab centers and the team eye doctor for several sports teams. He's also a founder and current president of the International Sports Vision Association and the current vice president of Neurooptometric Rehab Association. Lots of big words, acronyms we'll be speaking about uh, a lot of concussion, brain injury, and sports vision. Uh, Dr. S is a frequent lecturer on vision testing and rehab after a brain injury, injury, which now you hear the word sports concussion. We'll be speaking about that as well. So I am very honored to have you here, Charles. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. It's a pleasure to be here, Lynn. I've been an avid listener since you started this. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So before we get involved in talking about visual snow syndrome, let's define a few of these words like neurodevelopmental vision, vision rehab, acquired brain injury. Give some little definitions of all those words so we can move forward. Well, the term neurodevelopmental vision, uh, you know, developmental optometry has been around for a long time as a terminology, but it was really a, a recognition in my part that, you know, the brain and the eyes are connected. And so... Uh, and really, the brain, the eyes don't work without the brain uh, telling it, you know, what's going on. So, 
I really kind of liked the term neurodevelopmental in the sense that uh, it's really enforcing the concept of the eye-brain connection. And so that is, um, that's largely what it's about. But developmental optometry or neurodevelopmental optometry is really about working with uh, children primarily uh, with maybe autism or ADHD or dyslexia or language processing or visual processing problems, um, uh, working with, um, you know, kids with genetic disorders, um, uh, anything that would create a delay, um, but also in a way, uh, pediatric brain injury kind of fits into that category also, because you have to kind of weigh both sides of things. You know, you have to weigh the developmental side and you have to weigh the, the what's related to the neurologic injury. Um, so that's, that, that really is the neurodevelopmental side. Um, and really the neurodevelopmental side and the brain injury side kind of really kind of kind of bring together the concept of what, uh, of what a neurooptometrist is. And a neurooptometrist is someone who works in, the, in these different uh, specialty fields, if you will, within optometry. Um, and so you jump to the other side of it, and we're looking at uh, working with uh, patients who've had traumatic brain injuries, concussions, um, or, or uh, perhaps a stroke. Um, and and one of the things that I've loved to be able to get involved with over the last few years is I'm actually, we actually go to the hospital two times a week um, and see patients in the, in the rehab hospitals. So we're seeing people who have just recently had their neurologic injury. And that what we have learned from that, interesting enough, is that the sooner we get to these patients, the better off we are um, because we're able to help some of these patients pretty significantly, especially in the early stage. So the paradigm shift for optometry and neurooptometry, for that matter, is um, and, and really the paradigm shift that we need to share with our medical community as a whole is the fact that we really need to um, get to these patients as, as soon as we possibly can after injury. So, you know, that's a great point, um, Charles, because you and I have been in this field for a long, long time. I mean, I've been in uh, developmental vision for over 45 years. And how many years have you been in this field doing vision therapy uh, and rehab? Uh, probably, I've been in practice 33 years, probably one of those 33 years probably been involved in it in one way, shape or form. Yes. And so even back to the 90s, when I was doing research with patients with brain injury, it was such a novel idea to have a vision specialist. And those listeners who have uh, had the opportunity to hear some of our other guests, we've had guests talk about brain injury. And, and the big thing to remember, we're not talking about just seeing 2020. We're talking about all the other visual skills, visual processing, like Charles has mentioned, eye, mind, body. Uh, connection. And after injury, I want to give out a, a few stats after um, an acquired brain injury. What percentage of people usually have some type of visual issue? Well, if you look at the literature, it's that, and you've seen anywhere from 60 to 90 percent, but I would say it's probably in the realm of 80 to 90 percent um, have some sort of neurological injury, a uh, visual issue after a neurologic injury. Um, but don't forget, the visual system, uh, as far as the brain goes, it, you know, most people think of just the visual cortex, but really vision um, really virtually hits most parts of the brain. So um, any type of injury from brainstem injuries to cerebellar injuries to frontal lobe injuries, they all affect the visual system in one way or another. 
So um, that's that's what you have to understand is that it, a visual cortex injury. Um, many of these other injuries, you know, many, many different types of injuries can affect uh, the visual system. Yeah, and so what seems to be a, a simple, mild auto accident resulting in whiplash may have devastating effects on um, our eye movements and our focusing skills and convergence. And um, what's really interesting and it's so great, you're in the hospital setting, uh, seeing patients several times a week. There are many facilities, including many here in the Colorado area, that there are still not um, neurooptometrists on staff. And so when we see many of these patients, they're several months, sometimes even a year post-injury. And it's really, it's a tragedy because vision being our dominant sense for operating and seeing and, and moving in this world uh, should be right up in front, um, be evaluated right along with all the other, other physicians and therapists when somebody has a brain injury. I would definitely agree. You know, as I yeah. said, it, it's, it's, it's really something that we really need to expand upon. I know in the Denver area, um, you know, where my daughter works at Craig Hospital, they do have a vision program and it's really, and it's been a longstanding vision program there, but yeah. many more hospitals need it. That is for sure. And that's like the main one vision program. Um, and so that's great. Craig Hospital is very well known in the whole world of uh, spinal cord and brain injury rehab. So, well, great. Well, let's move into visual snow syndrome. In all the years that I've seen patients with visual problems, this is somewhat of a newer term and it describes many of the symptoms we've been and problems we've been treating for years. But now, all of a sudden, there's a, some languaging to explain it. Go ahead and explain the visual snow syndrome. Well, you know, I think if you've been doing things as long as you and I have, Lynn, I think what, we've all heard these symptoms before. You know, this is nothing that's new. It just became a name syndrome um, over the last five years, let's say, um, that, that really it became a name syndrome, uh, primarily uh related to the neuro-ophthalmology world really has come up with the terminology for it. Um, and uh, so I think that's really kind of, um, uh, it's really not a new phenomena, but it's, it's definitely a f things that have been affecting people. But people were afraid to talk about it for a long time because people, people thought they were crazy, saying, I see right. static in my vision 24-7. And right. um, and oftentimes they got referred to psychiatric institutions, um, you know, or psychiatric um, professionals to to deal with this. But basically, there's a diagnostic criteria now for visual snow. Um, and so basically, the first one is that they've had uh, that visual static, if you will, for longer than three months. And it, think of you know, think of the static on an old TV set. That's really kind of the easiest thing to. Um, uh, the easiest thing to, to, to apply it to it, but they see that 24 seven eyes open, eyes closed. It doesn't make a difference. They see that static. Um, the second thing is constant dots across the entire visual field between patients and the outside world. Um, and then 75% of patients also report at least three of the four following visual symptoms. Uh, one of the most common ones I hear about is palinopsias. Um, and that's kind of a continued image of a stationary scene. So, um, or trail, sometimes I call them trailers, um, you know, 
Uh, and the, the, the time we learned about that when I was you know younger is when you learned about people taking hallucinogenic medication uh, medications or hallucinogenic drugs for that matter. Um, they would see this, these palinopsies sometimes ten years after they did the, the drug. Uh, but palinopsies are very common with uh, with visual snow. Photophobia is a big big issue. Nyctalopia or an inability to see it at nighttime or dim and dark lighting. And topic phenomena, which are like visual images uh, inside the eye, floaters, or at least really, it's probably more of an increased perception of floaters than than actual, you know, floaters themselves. Um, some people report a blue field and topic phenomena, where they uh, where they kind of see the bluish field. Some have reported they see the inside of their own eye, um, and then spontaneous photopsias, you know, uh, spontaneous lights, uh, for, for lack of a better term. But interesting enough, there's also non-visual symptoms um, that are common with um, visual snow. Uh, the biggest one being tinnitus, um, uh, which is ringing in the ears. And so we seek that we hear hear that quite frequently. I'd say a good sixty to seventy percent of the cases have reported tinnitus. From a psychological standpoint, depersonalization is is a big one. Um, they, it's feeling detached from oneself. Uh, it always brings me back to the thought process of that famous book, that the ghost in my brain. Um, he, right. he was kind of talking about being depersonalized in, in that book. It was more about a neurologic, uh, you know, a small, a concussive injury. But I think um, in, in, in his case, he talked about that depersonalization. And that was the ghost in my, his brain was that de- depersonalization. Um, symptoms of anxiety and depression. I will say that a good percentage of them are, are going through a lot of anxiety and depression. And we almost have to treat that as part of what we're doing. Uh, some people have dizziness, dizziness and nausea. Frequent migraines are pretty common. Uh, brain fog, confusion, insomnia, uh, tingling in the arms or legs. So those are some of the things that um, that we definitely see. So they created a criteria for inclusion of constant visual snow for at least three months, two, or the, two out of four of the other visual symptoms. Um, obviously, you have to rule out migraines with aura, and the big difference is these, uh, these, these auras don't dissipate in visual snow, where with migraines, they tend to go away, um, and rule out other symptoms or for not other conditions. And then lastly, I mentioned this before just a moment ago, is psychotropic drugs can, can mimic this. Um, so obviously, and there's, there's a disorder called HPPD, which is related to psychotropic drugs. So that's really not visual snow. Um, and and lastly, I'll say that, once again, there's there's some comorbidities: migraines, neurologic injury like concussions, anxiety and depression. And the other thing that I saw in this grouping, which was really a surprise, but it probably shouldn't be, is really a lot of these type A personalities or high intelligence personalities. Um, so those are some of the things we definitely saw uh, in, in these groupings. That is so interesting. Um, you know, Charles, I did research in 1991 where we actually looked at electrodiagnostic uh, diagnostic testing of patients who had diagnosed mild brain injury, not by us, but by neurologists or neuropsychologists. And they were at least one year post-accident which especially in you know the 90s, if you survived over a year, they figured you should be totally healed and there was nothing, you know, no other symptoms should be residually bothering you. And these were patients that still had symptoms. And so many of them had these, many of the symptoms that you uh, noted, especially the 
the light sensitivity. And, and I remember some, we called it persistent after images. You know, they'd look at something, they'd turn away and they'd see a trail of light. And, and we would just label it the symptom without knowing. But what was really interesting when we did our, our evaluations, the electrodiagnostic testing showed about 70 to 80% of these patients, even though they saw 2020 with glasses and there was no pathology uh, in the eyes or the nerves detected, 70 to 80% had abnormal VEPs, electrodiagnostic testings, either lower amplitudes or longer latencies. And we couldn't explain it. It didn't make sense. And when we repeated this testing over time, you'd see the testing even get worse, which, you know, in normal VEP testing, if you have a problem, you note know that it's a problem, you repeat it and you see the same thing. Well, the hallmark of our um, testing was that we'd see the degradation, the um, waveforms of the electrodiagnostic testing really got worse. And after therapy, we'll talk about it improved, but the question is, we never could tell where and why in the brain this was happening. So visual snow seems to address what we were seeing, but you know, is there, what, what are the theories now of, from the neurological side? What's the mechanism where and how is this happening that patients have these kinds of just vague weird symptoms? Well, that's a great question. And I, and I don't think we have a true answer for it yet because when I've talked to the neuroscientists all over the all over the world, really, about visual snow, um, it was kind of funny. I was having a conversation with them a, a while back, and I and and you know they were telling me, well, we can't seem to find anything on imaging, uh, you know, that would indicate you know as a, as a marker for visual snow. And I said, I said, I think the real problem is you're looking at it from thirty thousand feet in an airplane when you need to be on the ground with a magnifying glass. Because um, I think they were really kind of, you know, looking at the wrong thing. They were looking at large structure where they really needed to go down to the cellular level. But really what I think happens is we get this visual input. And, and where visual input, our system would, would will suppress a lot of the imaging. Um, that system stops suppressing that imaging. And and, um, and kind of my, my take on it from a neurologic standpoint is I think it's when you get the, we we have to think about our neural pathways for for vision, and we have our you know our our, our what we so called focal pathway and our ambient pathway. Um, and I but I think um, I think largely in my mind uh, a key structure that may very well be involved in this is the thalamus, and the thalamus is a regulatory center of the brain. And since this is a dysregulation, it, make, it would make sense from it. But the other interesting thing about the thalamus is you have the colliculus as part of the thalamus, and the superior colliculus is primarily visual, and the inferior colliculus is primarily auditory. And since you have visual and auditory symptoms as your main hallmarks um, of this disease, this disorder, um, then it would make sense. And there's a feedback between the superior and inferior colliculus too. So it would make sense that somehow the colliculus is... is um, somehow involved in this whole process. Um, uh, I won't say it's the only thing involved, but I would certainly think that that is playing a major component in it. And then you start looking at other things like the brain fog and, and things of that nature, and, and, and you start thinking about inflammatory states. Uh, so I do think neuroinflammation is playing a role in this as well. Um, so I, so I, I don't think it's, 
I don't think we have the true answer, but I do think we have some ideas uh, that neuroinflammation and, and and some effect to the thalamus and, and some other structures of the brain and really the connected structures of the brain um, are, are really all playing a role in this and ultimately coming back to the visual cortex. So that's kind of what I think is going on. But I, as I said, nothing has been proven to this point. Uh, but but I think the idea of, from a therapeutic standpoint, the idea of when we went to, to look at what can we do treatment-wise was let's see if we can decrease the visual input about 20% because my hypothesis was if I decrease the input about 20% um, or the stress to the input by about 20%, I think I could probably improve their quality of life by 80%. And that was my working hypothesis going into our study that we did. Well, that's really very, very interesting because that puts pulls together, you know, some of the uh, we call them little magical tricks from tints, and I'm sure you'll talk more about that tints to occlusions to some of the therapeutic things that we use. Uh, why we would get such big successes with, and I call them filtering mechanisms, but they could be regulation mechanisms. But um, you know, this whole theory makes a lot of sense. And I know many of our listeners are physicians and optometrists, but many are, you know, patients and educators, and whatever. And, and I urge you, don't get hung up on the neurology, but just know that many patients have MRIs, CT scans, and are told nothing's wrong because we don't see most of these problems on imaging, like you just said, but that functionally, they're very disturbed. And what we're looking at, I loved your analogy of you know, don't look at the 30,000 foot view, get down and look at the function. And and so many of these patients will have vague uh, symptoms that could come and go. Stress impacts them. A lot of nutrition impacts them. And so we're talking about the whole brain here, but really paying from our perspective attention to uh, more of the visual aspects since we're eye docs. But, you know, other people in the rehab field are going to see this uh, physical and occupational therapists that are trying to get patients back to functioning or trying to figure out, well, why can't you track when you read or why is the glare on the computer screen so difficult? So so we have one brain and we have lots of therapists that work on that brain. And the goal here is to really uh, work as a team, work together and and get the best for the patient. So, Charles, we're going to take a break here in just a, a minute here. And when we get back, uh, I really want to spend a lot of time on what more you found out in your study, as well as uh, the treatment options that have been very successful for many of these patients. Okay, we'll be right back. Dr. Lin will be right back after this. child see really see more than 2020 does your child struggle in school have trouble with tracking when reading or resist writing 
Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Welcome back, everybody. Today we're talking with Dr. Charles Shadovsky. We're talking about visual snow syndrome, which is a vision disorder that has fairly recently been labeled. Uh, includes a lot of symptoms that we've seen uh, with patients that have had some type of acquired brain injury. And the challenge always is many of these patients are told they see just fine, which they do. Their eyes often look healthy, yet they have significant visual problems and extensive lists that uh, Charles went through at the first half of the show. So let's spend our second half of the program really talking about the treatment for these patients you found effective and uh, what's really working for you right now. Well, you know, I kind of, when I talk about a therapy program, developing a therapy program, I always talk about, um, I, I kind of liken it to building a house. As you know, I love analogies. So, um, you know, I, so, I, so, you know, I think when you're going to build a house, you're going to start, you know, with the soil and which is your nutrition and your air and your environment and your sleep and your oxidative stress, things of that nature. Um, and then you're going to build the foundation. And that's what I call visual vestibular grounding. That's kind of no, helping, uh, helping the individual identify where they are in space. Um, we can work on gross and fine motor movements, eye-hand coordination, peripheral awareness, primitive reflexes, 
So we're going to look at all those types of things to help them uh, in that process. So that's really my our foundation element of uh, of the program. And we always start with this, no matter what is what the situation. We're always going to start with making sure the foundation's in place first, and then we're going to kind of build the scaffolding and the walls, and which is um, making sure each eye individually is working well, um, working on near far, uh, a com- uh, you know, a monocular accommodation. Uh, equal acuity is occlusion. You know, this is where we can bring in some occlusion techniques, um, monocular ocular motor skills, and things of that nature. And then we can kind of get into the roof. Um, if you think about the roof, the roof converges. So obviously, that's your binocular vision skills, um, your binocular ocular motor skills, accommodation again, uh, or binocular accommodation, um, central peripheral fusion, vergences, fixations, and and, and so we're, then we kind of keep building from there. And then lastly, we have to take down the scaffolding, and that's our perceptual and cognitive finish. So I always kind of design a program based on that that generalized concept. And that's when I had my very first visual snow patient with diagnosed visual snow four years ago. That was kind of how I sat down with my therapist, and I said, this is how we're going to build this program for this unique uh, disorder and see what we can see what happens. And when we saw this this guy, um, uh, we, we, we went right through it and we built, we, we, we figured out what fit, fit under each category and we built the program around it. And luckily with him, um, and, and, and this guy was a college baseball player and, uh, and he couldn't play baseball for a season and a half, uh, because of this. And then, uh, so we did his, we did his treatment and, um, interesting enough, by the end of his treatment, he he felt like he returned pretty much back to normal. Went back to playing college baseball the next season, and was leading the league in hitting, um, and uh, and really had been restored to a full thing. And then COVID hit, <laughs> and that ended the season. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, we learned a lot by that one case. And interesting enough, Sports Illustrated wrote an article about him. That came out in I think May of 2020, and that's when you know all this interest started kicking up about Visual Snow, and I got reached out to by Visual Snow Initiative, and um, and then connected to Dr. Terry Sang out in California, who was working with some Visual Snow patients, and and we came up with the idea of doing this research project for it. So that's kind of how this all came about. That's so interesting. So this ball player got not only vision rehab, also got sports vision training together and what a great story and success case. Um, you mentioned that somebody diagnosed, who's doing the diagnosis of the vision snow syndrome? And is that an ICD-10 accepted medical code? Uh, first of all, it's not ICD-10 at this point. As you know, every, anything with ICD-10 takes years and years. So, um, but obviously you can, subjective visual disturbances would become the ICD-10 that would be the most common. Ocular motor dysfunction, visual spatial disorientation, things of that nature are all ICD-10 that kind of fit in that category. Um, uh, so, so uh, as I said, I think who's diagnosing it? Primarily neurologists and ophthalmologists at this point, but I don't see any reason we can't diagnose it either. Um, because, you know, as I said, it's not a formalized diagnosis. And certainly the visual elements are certainly within the, you know, the realm of optometry to, to make those diagnoses as well. Um, it's pretty much kind of similar to ADD and ADHD in a way because it's a checklist diagnosis. 
you have this, 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 and this? Yes. Well, then you probably have visual snow syndrome. So it's it's really not a diagnostic. Um, now, interesting enough, um, I've been kind of playing around with this. This is something, I, and I, I don't have enough data on it yet, but I've been playing around with EEGs, doing um, uh, 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 event-related potential EEGs, and I'm finding with with, with uh, a visual task, we're we're seeing a significant delay in our visual snow patients. So more to more to come on that, uh, maybe down the line, as I kind of see more and more patients and, and and do more recordings on that. So maybe we will have a diagnostic test eventually for it. But for right now, um, it's pretty much checklist diagnosis. Oh, that's very interesting with your, what you're looking at EEGs, because again, my VEPs, visually evoked potentials, showed abnormalities over time. Uh, so it'd be really interesting to look at some of that uh, as possible diagnostic criteria for the future. I do know in Colorado, I mean, you just don't hear that terminology very often yet. So I think it's up and coming. And thanks to you and your colleagues for your uh, research project. Tell us a little bit more about uh, how that project developed, what you found out and learned, and where you go from here. Well, basically, um, right after the Sports Illustrated article, um, uh, Visual Snow Initiative reached out to me, which is an organization. It's visualsnowinitiative.org. Um, they reached out to me, and they, were, they read the article. They were real interested in what we found out. And, um, uh, you know, I think uh, they, they were already talking to Dr. Stang out in California. Uh, she was working with a patient or two out there. And they connected us, and we started talking about it. I said, you know, we don't know what we have here. We may, maybe we caught lightning in a bottle, and we both had successes, and who knows. But I said, it probably deserves maybe a pilot study of some sort so that we can um, – so that we can kind of figure out, do we have something here? Because uh, at that point in time, we had no idea if we had something or not. Um, so we decided to do this pilot study, and we went and looked, is there a diagnostic criteria for visual snow? Well, there really wasn't a diagnostic criteria. So the only thing we can really grab onto was NEI, a National Eye Institute, had developed a uh, quality of life questionnaire. And um, it was it had been studied and had been verified by studies uh, as as uh, um, statistically significant. So we decided to use that quality of life study. Because, and once it goes back to my idea that if I improved input 50, 20 percent, I would improve their, their lifestyle 80 percent. So it kind of fit what, what the basic concept of it. So we, 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 we actually went ahead and, and gave them this um, questionnaire prior to beginning therapy, midway through therapy, and at the end of therapy, and we and we get, get, uh, then we measured the change in their in their in their responses on on that uh, on that particular NEI survey. Um, and so, what ended up happening ultimately is um, uh, most of the areas that we expected to change in the study actually did change. Um, and there, there was a few areas that we didn't like eye health. Obviously, eye health was not really a particular um, concern at the beginning. It wasn't a concern at the end, so that didn't change. But many of the other findings uh, in in the in the study actually did show statistically significant changes. Some pretty drastic statistically significant change. Um, Do you want to you know, share it, some of those drastic changes? You know, what kind of functions improved? Yes, and I, I think that I think that's we couldn't say that in the study. By the way, in the study they said you did this quality of life study, so you can say that, that the quality of life improved, but we couldn't say that their symptoms improved. However, I'm here to tell you that 
their quality of life improved and their symptoms improved. Um, and so that's kind of largely what we, we want to talk about more now is we want to talk about their symptom improvement um, and what type of symptom improvement can be can be expected, um, you know, with um, with doing a treatment. And so what we decided to do it now that we moving forward is we decided to put on these visual snow master classes where we can spend two days teaching uh, others in the medical community, optometrists, um, about visual snow, about the treatment of visual snow syndrome. Um, and we're so we're going to do our first master class here in Dallas on um, January 28th and 29th. Um, and uh, and then we're going to do one. We're actually doing one in Australia, March 25th and 26th in Sydney, Australia. We're going to do one in Toronto, May 6th and 7th. Miami, May 20th and 21st. Irvine, California, 29th and 30th of July. And then back in Vancouver, the 21st and 22nd of October. So we we really wanted to bring this out. We want to keep. We want to bring this out to the to the eye care community, so they're much more aware of it. But it's not like we're going to reteach therapy. Everyone knows therapy. What we really want to do is we want to teach the proper order to do therapy. We want to we want to go through cases so they understand what what expectations they can have. We want them to understand the, the pathophysiology or what we think the pathophysiology of visual snow is. So so it's it's basically going to be a twelve hour cope approved course. Um, and, and I think that's the best way we can do it because Terry and I, <laughs> we can't see everybody. We want, we want this for the optometric community. And so let, let's teach as many people as we can about this and make more people aware. Well, that's excellent. And this, these courses are mainly for optometrists. Is that correct? Or are other people in the medical community? <clears throat> They're mainly for optometrists. Having said that, um, we're open to having anyone in the medical community come out and, and take part of it. And what we'd love to do, and this is a really major point for me, is we would love to connect for the medical community a neurooptometrist who's who's done this course um, so that they have that connection there so they can work with somebody who can actually go through and, and do the, the treatment. Great. So in in some of your treatment, you talked about therapy. Um, does some of your treatment also include special lenses, tints, occlusions? You want to explain a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, for some for some patients, we used um, uh, yoke prisms. I mean, yoke prisms are a powerful tool in our toolbox. I've been using yoke prisms for pretty much thirty years now um, as a tool uh, for neurological injury, but or a tool for for uh, even developmental cases, but certainly has been a tool in many of our cases for visual snow. Um, we've been using syntonics or color, you know, colored filters um, to, to to help um, stabilize the system. We've been using a lot of FL41 tint, which is uh, was originally developed. A lot of people don't know what the FL stands for. It stands for fluorescent light. It was it's meant to stop the flicker in fluorescent light years ago. But it actually has proven to be a, a workhorse tint for our patients with visual snow. I know Barry Tannen has done a lot of good work um, with using a colorimeter to determine um, the proper uh, color. Uh, I think Esther Hans worked with her with him as well in, in determining <clears throat> colorimetry to determine um, some treatments or at least some palliative treatments for uh, for visual snow. So they they deserve to be applauded for their work. 
and 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 looking at tints. Um, so I think there is um, there's a lot to be said for um, some of these treatments as as a overall treatment as part of an overall treatment plan for visual snow. And do you find that you've changed your treatment for these patients dramatically from how you used to treat them when we didn't have the label or understanding of the term vision snow? Um, I think the, the things that we've changed since the study, interesting enough, is really kind of uh, expanding out on some of the things like if they have anxiety, for instance, and many of them do have high anxiety, um, can we give them some some techniques like breathing techniques, uh, many of which you talk about for athletes in, in your book, Lynn, um, different breathing techniques. Um, uh, we, there's a program out there called Brain Tap, uh, which has been at many of our conferences, uh, and we'll, we'll put people on Brain Tap beforehand. Um, we'll talk to them about their nutrition, um, maybe putting them on an anti-inflammatory diet, um, because if we suspect that inflammation is playing a role in this, Maybe an anti-inflammatory diet has a has a role in this overall treatment plan. Um, so we've really expanded on what we've done on on the uh, beyond just the traditional vision therapy. But the vision therapy is still in a very important aspect of the, the the overall treatment. It's what gets them back to headed back in the right direction. But I don't think you can do it just alone. Uh, you know, I think you have to kind of think about the whole patient and all the patient symptoms, not just the visual symptoms. Beautifully said. And it's just become such so much more expansive <clears throat> kind of treatment. Um, and that's where I'm so glad that you mentioned the things like breathing, visualization, relaxation, because that allows us to help the patient do the kinds of visual tasks we're really trying to improve. Uh, if they're too stressed or they're too sick or they can't sleep or all these other kinds of problems, it's very difficult to address the visual system. Uh, one of the questions I had for you, and you mentioned it a little bit before, was so often you see these patients having vestibular balance kinds of issues. Um, after you've treated many of these patients, are you seeing... And, and a great example was your baseball player, but do the majority of your patients show great improvement of function and does that stay with them over time? Yes. First of all, interesting enough, you bring up balance because we balance tested every peop every uh, every individual on the study prior to the, to it and after. Uh, we did a modified CATSIB test. Um, and, uh, and we, and we definitely did see an improvement in balance overall, by the way, uh, uh pre and post therapy, which you'd expect, um, uh, because even when we do a, any type of neurological injury, we see an improvement in balance pre and post injury. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's one of those things that, um, we, we can certainly, uh, play a role and play an impact with. And what was the second part of your question again? Sorry about that one. Well, and so many patients ask, as they get better, will these skills not only improve, but will they be sustained? Will they go back to being, you know, an issue? And just, they're always looking to see, am I going to be okay? And I can I get back to normal? And we only have like two minutes left to go. So so give us the uh, quick the uh, view of what happens with these <laughs> patients. All right. Well, well, simply put, um, we're starting to see these people a year, year and a half out from the, 
from therapy at this point in time now, and everyone is seems to be sustaining the changes that we've made. There's been a few exceptions. You know, I've had patients who've developed, for instance, COVID or a bad flu, and they kind of regress a little bit, and we have to kind of get them back on track. But it doesn't take very long for them to get back on the right pathway. But uh, I would say overall, everyone has sustained the changes over over the time. So I'm really excited to see that because that obviously that was one of our big questions at the beginning. Um, you know, is this a sustainable thing? Um, and and appears to be at this point in time. That is so excellent. Well, Charles, I want to make sure that you uh, talk about how people can find an eye doctor, an optometrist, uh, to help them. And uh, everybody needs to know much of this information will be on our show notes and your contact information will be there. But how can folks around the world, the country, find a doc like you? Well, obviously, um, there's several good websites out there um, as far as finding uh, people who do ne- deal with neurological injuries and things like that. Obviously, um, COVD website, COVD.org is a great place. Norvisionrehab.org for the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association. If you're interested in sports vision, um, it's sportsvision.pro. Um, that, that, those are three great websites to get started. But as I said, as we teach this master class, um, we're going to put everybody who's who does the master classes on the actual Visual Snow Initiative website as a resource for Visual Snow, and so that's located at visualsnowinitiative.org. That's so great. I thank you for all you're doing and your great research and sharing your brilliance with our audience. Thank you so very much. Looking forward to hearing more. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.